At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. Welcome to another blood-soaked and disturbing episode of American Hauntings, the podcast hosted and produced by Cody Beck and written and performed by Troy Taylor. That's me. This may be the sketchiest season so far of the podcast, and well, it's a long way from being over. For 14 episodes now, we have been taking you behind the locked doors and down the dirty back alleys of Hollywood, the movie capital of the world, a place that's supposed to be all about palm trees, swimming pools, and movie stars. But far more often, it simply became a boulevard of broken dreams, lined by murder, myths, cranks, kooks, lunatics, and killers. Our fifth season has been a one-way ride into the blackest heart of Los Angeles, the so-called City of Angels. But as we've already found, the only angels around here are the fallen kind. This episode is a little different than what we've done before. We won't call it a third part of the Black Dahlia story, but it's definitely connected. So I guess it's a sequel, but we won't bother to put a number about that title. To get the full story, you really want to go back and listen to episodes 82 and 83 first. And well, for that matter, why not just listen to the whole season? It started with episode 70 and will end at some point. I just don't know when. Each episode delves into Hollywood crime, corruption, murder, and of course, ghosts. Just keep in mind that the episodes in the season are definitely not suitable for all listeners. So listen at your own peril. Are you still with us? Okay, then, if you are, turn down the lights and pour yourself a strong one and get ready for the new episode of American Hauntings. Our last two episodes dealt with the life and death of Beth Short, the mysterious Black Dahlia, whose murder remains unsolved since 1947. But Beth was far from the only woman being violently murdered in Los Angeles in the late 1940s. In fact, the murder rate became so high that many law enforcement officials and reporters began to believe that all the murders might be connected in some way, leading a few reporters to dub the string of violent crimes the werewolf murders. Over time, it's come to light that most of these murders were not really connected, but as I promised, there was at least one unsolved murder that was linked to the infamous Black Dahlia case, and some of those links were pretty disturbing. That murder happened in 1944, and the victim was a friend of Beth Short's who volunteered with her at the Hollywood Canteen, a dance spot frequented by both military servicemen and movie stars. 
Located in an old barn at the corner of Sunset and Coanga Boulevard, the canteen had a western motif with wagon wheel lights hanging from the ceiling, paintings of the Old West, and an old-fashioned saloon bar. More than three million men and women in uniform visited the canteen from the time it opened in October 1943 until it closed the day after Thanksgiving in 1945. Celebrities volunteered to be on staff and greet the young servicemen and women who came through the doors. They included people like Betty Davis, John Garfield, Irene Dunn, and many others. It was at the Hollywood Canteen where Beth met actor Arthur Lake in September 1944. Lake played Dagwood Bumstead, the bumbling husband in Columbia Studios' successful string of Blondie films based on the comic strip characters. A perk for the always broke Beth was that she could get free meals at the canteen by becoming a junior hostess. She became friends with many of the other girls who were doing the same thing, like Georgette Bauerdorf, who was also acquainted with Arthur Lake. Beth and Georgette were both attractive 20-year-olds when they became canteen volunteers in 1944. Both girls were popular with servicemen on leave who competed for the chance to cut in with them on the dance floor. Well, one night in September, Beth danced with Lieutenant Joseph Fickling, a pilot stationed at the Army Air Base in Long Beach. Although it was against canteen rules, they began dating, and predictably, Beth fell in love. But like so many other wartime romances, their relationship was put on hold when Joe received orders to ship out and was sent to England. And it was shortly after Joe's departure that Georgette was murdered. Her body was found floating in the bathtub of her West Hollywood apartment. Soon after the murder, perhaps spooked by the death of a friend, Beth Short abruptly left L.A. and arrived home in Medford, Massachusetts, just in time for Thanksgiving with her family. But Beth couldn't stay there. She went to Miami for the winter and was often seen at a beachfront bar called The Grotto, which was operated by mobster Meyer Lansky. She returned to Medford in March 1945 and worked as a waitress at St. Clair's Restaurant in Cambridge, and it was at St. Clair's that Beth met another waitress named Marjorie Graham, whom she would later encounter in Hollywood and room with at the Hawthorne Hotel, a notorious spot for prostitutes. It wouldn't be long after that when Beth Short's body would be found in an empty lot, and she would become the infamous Black Dahlia. But soon, Beth's murder would be linked to others, including that of Georgette Beierdorf. Even though three years had passed between the murders of Beth and Georgette, the links between them were eerie. Now, those links were revealed by Los Angeles Herald Express writer Aggie Underwood. Aggie was a veteran reporter who loved to shake things up, and the paper, then owned by William Randolph Hearst, often allowed her to do so. Aggie's front page article was in response to the many young women who had been murdered in the 1940s, but unlike Beth Short, most had been forgotten. The article would provoke not only general panic about sex killers, but also the grand jury investigation into the actions of the LAPD during this time, which was mentioned in past episodes. The 1940s was a violent and dark era in American history, thanks to World War II and the trouble that began brewing in Korea by the end of the decade. Since war and death had become a common topic for most families during this time, the newspapers weren't seen as going too far when they stoked the threats of killers, child molesters, maniacs, monsters, and fiends. Stories of murder, disappearances, and brutal killings filled the papers after the war in a way like no one had ever seen before, setting the stage for what would become the very famous murder of the Black Dahlia. 
It's hard to know why Beth's murder persists in the public memory more than the other unfortunate women who were slaughtered during this era. Perhaps it was the method of murder, the sheer brutality, or the glamorous aspects of the case that turned it into something like a Hollywood thriller. There were other young women murdered horribly, yet we don't remember them today. Some of these other murders were solved, while, like Beth's, many remain unsolved to this day. Aggie Underwood was determined to shine a light on the violence in the city by spotlighting some of the other victims. Like Lila Adele Wells, she was an heiress and a beautiful young woman who was murdered in her own home while her mother and brother slept down the hall. They never heard a thing. Her murder was never solved. Less than a month after Beth's body was discovered, Jean French was discovered naked and tortured in Culver City. She had been kicked and stomped to death. The killer had written fuck you PD and Tex on her torso in red lipstick. The police were quick to say that the Black Dahlia and the so-called red lipstick murder were not connected, but her murder was also never solved. On July 16, 1942, Mrs. Helen Brown was beaten to death in her apartment. Mrs. Brown was 20 years old and pregnant. Following the murder, the killer went to the kitchen and cooked himself breakfast. On November 15, 1944, two women's mutilated bodies were discovered at separate downtown Los Angeles hotels. The first victim was 25-year-old Virgie Lee Griffin. Her body was stuffed in a clothes closet in the Barclay Hotel. Next to her corpse were the murder weapons, a large butcher's knife and a straight razor. Detective Harry Hansen, who would later be lead on the Black Dahlia case, was assigned to the murder. He was also one of the cops who had to hurry to another murder scene a few blocks away. The second victim was 38-year-old Lillian Johnson. Like Virgie Griffin, she had been hacked to pieces. Her breasts had been cut off and her vagina had been dissected. The police had a description of the man last seen with Lillian. A patrolman named H.E. Donnellan decided to check out the bars in the neighborhood and walked into a place just a few doors down and noticed a man at the bar who fit the suspect's description, sitting with a glass of wine and was chatting with a woman. In the man's hand was a book of matches from the Barclay Hotel, where Virgie Griffin had been killed. Donlin walked over to the man, snapped a pair of handcuffs on his wrist. His name was Otto Stephen Wilson, and at first Wilson denied having anything to do with the murders, but eventually he collapsed and confessed. It had been a successful day for the police. The first murder had been discovered at 2 p.m., the second at 3.30 p.m. The suspect was in custody by 5.30 p.m., and by 7.30 p.m., he confessed. If someone had suggested this as a script for a movie, it would have been tossed out. Too unrealistic, the producer would have said. And then there was the murder of Georgette Beierdorf, the girl who had volunteered with Beth Short at the Hollywood Canteen in 1944. Georgette was the attractive daughter of wealthy Wall Street financier George Bauerdorf, who had made a fortune in the oil industry. He was a close friend of Aggie's boss, William Randolph Hearst. Georgette had been killed on October 12, 1944, just a little over two years before Beth was killed. Georgette had been beaten, raped, and asphyxiated by a cloth that had been shoved down her throat. Her body had been left in the bathtub and the killer had turned on the water before he fled the scene. Aggie featured the Georgette Bauerdorf case in a front page article that she wrote for the Herald Express. Under a headline that read, Werewolves Leave Trail of Women Murder Victims in L.A., she included the Beierdorf case and several other female victims of unsolved murders in recent Los Angeles history. The article raised the question of the LAPD's competency and asked whether or not the streets of the city were even safe for young women. 
Well, the article managed to make a lot of people angry, but it was hard to deny the links between Georgette's case and that of Beth Short. Beth and Georgette were both born in 1924. Georgette came from a wealthy New York family and had lived on Park Avenue before moving to L.A. Beth, of course, came from a family with a missing father and a mother who worked whatever job she could find to feed her children while on welfare. While Beth had been waiting tables in Miami, Georgette was attending the exclusive Westlake School for Girls in Bel Air. But in many ways, the two young women were alike. Both had dark hair and made friends easily. Both enjoyed the company of attractive men in uniform, but unlike Beth, Georgette had gone to finishing schools and all her bills were being paid by her indulgent family. At the time of her death, she lived alone in her family's apartment in a fashionable Spanish-style building in West Hollywood. The apartment building, El Palacio, had been the transitory home of a number of film stars and celebrities, including Joan Crawford, John Garfield, and others. Mobster Johnny Roselli became a resident of El Palacio, after his release from prison in 1947. Because the building was in West Hollywood and just outside the jurisdiction of the LAPD, the Bauerdorf murder investigation was handled by the LA County Sheriff's Department. Georgette's body was discovered by Mr. and Mrs. Frederick Atwood, the building's managers who lived downstairs from her apartment. The Atwoods told detectives they were awakened sometime after midnight on Wednesday, October 11th, 1944 by a quote, commotion and what sounded like a crash of something metallic. The next morning they found Georgette's door was partially open and they could hear the sound of running water coming from inside. Mrs. Atwood knocked on the door and when there was no answer, she and her husband cautiously entered the apartment. They found that the place was flooded with water that was pouring out of the bathtub. And then, to their horror, they found Georgette's body submerged face down in the overflowing tub. When the detectives from the sheriff's department arrived, they determined that Georgette had been assaulted and raped in the bedroom and then asphyxiated by a piece of cloth that was shoved down her throat. Blood stains were found on the floor near the bed, along with her pajama bottoms, which had been sliced by a knife. Apparently, the killer fled after placing the body in the bathtub and turning on the water. Since the water had been left running, the detectives surmised that the killer might have been frightened off by something. Georgette's neighbor, prominent Hollywood drama coach Stella Adler, recalled that she had returned to her apartment at a little after midnight and noticed that Georgette's door was partially open. This would have been a very short time after the Atwoods heard the loud sounds coming from her apartment. During the inquest, it was determined by medical examiner Frank Webb that Georgette's murder had taken place around midnight and that the official cause of death was, quote, obstruction of upper air passages by inserted cloth. Dr. Webb stated that abrasions of the knuckles of the girl's hands showed that she'd fought desperately against the attacker. Thumb and finger marks on her face, lips, abdomen, and thighs indicated the attacker was powerful with, quote, almost ape-like hands. The victim had been asphyxiated prior to the time that her body had been placed in the bathtub. Georgette's purse was found on the floor near the bedroom door and its contents were strewn about nearby. Her car keys were missing and her green Oldsmobile coupe, which she normally kept in the Palacio garage, was gone. Three days later, the car was found parked at the curb south of downtown Los Angeles. The keys had been left in the ignition and sheriff's detectives concluded it had been abandoned there by the killer. Georgette had last been seen alive by her co-workers at the Hollywood Canteen. She'd left at approximately 10.30 p.m. on Wednesday evening, October 11th. Like Beth Short, she served as a junior hostess and would socialize and dance with the servicemen on leave in Hollywood. 
Her friend, June Sigler, who worked in the classified department of the Los Angeles Times, was also a volunteer hostess. She told detectives that she'd seen Georgette dancing with a number of different servicemen that evening, just as she always did. Well, detectives found dozens of fingerprint samples in Georgette's apartment and car. Although it was against canteen rules, Georgette sometimes invited servicemen whom she met at the canteen to come home with her if they needed a place to stay. Although her friends warned her not to, she sometimes gave lifts to hitchhiking men in uniform. It's not surprising there were so many fingerprints in her apartment and in her car. What was unusual were the fingerprints that were found on an automatic nightlight on the porch leading to Georgette's apartment. The bulb had been partially unscrewed so that it wouldn't come on, leaving the area around the entrance in shadows. Investigators believe that the killer may have been someone that Georgette would recognize, so he unscrewed the bulb and stood in the dark to avoid recognition before forcing his way in when the door was opened. The prints of the killer, though, were never identified. It was the fact that Georgette's body had been found in the bathtub that compelled Aggie Underwood to try and renew interest in the story after the Black Dahlia murder. Detectives believed that Beth's body might have been severed in a bathtub after she'd been killed. The method of the murder had been different, but it was hard to ignore that bathtub. Plus, Aggie had heard through contacts in the sheriff's department that detectives had found and confiscated Georgette's diary, which documented her friendship with Beth and their acquaintance with the celebrity who frequented the canteen. He was very quietly brought in for questioning, and although it was never mentioned by the sheriff's department, the LAPD, or the press, the celebrity was Arthur Lake, the actor mentioned earlier, who played Dagwood in the Blondie series. Now, that wasn't Lake's first Hollywood role. He started acting as a child and appeared in dozens of comedic and romantic roles. He became best known for his portrayal of Dagwood Bumstead, though, appearing in 28 Blondie films that were made by Columbia between 1938 and 1950. He was also the voice of Dagwood on a radio series and later played the character on a very short-lived television series, too. After Beth Short's murder, Hollywood canteen records were checked by sheriff's investigators. A former hostess recalled that Arthur Lake socialized with both of the murdered girls. When Lake met with investigators, he reluctantly told Detective Frank Escoville that he, quote, may have talked to Elizabeth Short and Georgia Bauerdorf at the canteen. Beyond that, he said, there was nothing he knew that could help the investigation. But then Lake had something to add. According to the detective, quote, Dagwood looked us straight in the face from one to the other and said he wanted us to understand that his wife, Patricia, was the niece of Marion Davies, a close friend of William Randolph Hearst and George Bauerdorf, the murder girl's father. Lake said that any further questions the detectives had for him needed to be handled through his attorney. He didn't add that he was also a close friend of Hearst, was a frequent house guest of the newspaper magnet, or that he and his wife had been married at Hearst's castle in San Simeon in 1937. Investigators believe there was a link between the Bauerdorf murder, the Black Dahlia case, and Arthur Lake, and that he should be questioned further, but Detective Escoville told Aggie that the investigation into both cases had been blocked, and that all logical avenues of investigation had been shut down. Well, after Aggie wrote the article about the unsolved murders of Georgette Bierdorf, Beth Short, and a number of other young women, she began working on a longer story about the similarities between the Bauerdorf murder, the Black Dahlia case, and of course the Arthur Lake connection. But before she could complete the article, she was told by her managing editor to kill the story. 
He also told her that she was being pulled off the Black Dahlia case altogether. When Aggie demanded to know why the story had been killed and why she'd been taken off the Dahlia murder, she was told that it was on orders from the boss. Of course, the boss was William Randolph Hearst. Aggie was so angry that she threatened to quit, but instead they promoted her from reporter to city editor. It was, they believed, the best way to keep her quiet. No woman had ever been appointed city editor at a major metropolitan newspaper before, and Aggie found the promotion difficult to resist. She asked what would happen to the Bauerdorf case, and she was told it would not be mentioned again. It was added, in no uncertain terms, quote, we will not recognize that name anymore at the Herald. Aggie Underwood knew that her silence was the price of her promotion, but she accepted it anyway. She later said, quote, I decided I wanted to be the city editor at the Herald. That's all I could ever say about the Bauerdorf or the Dahlia case, but I lay awake many nights wondering if I did the right thing. Like Beth Short's murder, the Georgette Bauerdorf case was never solved. Beth and Georgette's murders were far from the only open and unsolved cases in LAPD files. The decade of the 1940s wouldn't end before another young would-be movie star vanished in LA and captured newspaper headlines. As detectives dug into the case, they found more parallels with the Black Dahlia case, but with one big difference. This time, they didn't find a body. Jean Elizabeth Spangler was one of the hundreds of pretty, talented girls in Hollywood hoping for their big break in the movies. While she waited for it, Jean studied, worked hard, and did what she could to earn a living in show business. She had to earn money to support her mother and her daughter, Christine, who was still very young. Jean's marriage had broken up just after the end of World War II. Her desperation often meant that she had to do things she didn't necessarily want to do, like work at a dancer in cheap clubs and bars. One of those was the Florentine Gardens, a place that some listeners might remember was owned by Mark Hansen, a suspect in the Black Dahlia murder, thanks to his connections to Beth Short. At the Florentine Gardens, Gene met Ben Siegel's second-in-command, Mickey Cohen, and they became friends. Cohen escorted her to a number of Hollywood's hottest night spots, and she became a member of the Extras Guild, which Siegel controlled and started getting bit parts in the movies. While waiting for their big break, both Beth Short and Gene Spangler seemed to travel down the same paths on their road to what would turn out to be infamy. Gene, too, hung around Brittingham's restaurant next to Columbia Studios. Hoping to become a Columbia starlet, she was promised a screen test by Morris Clement's boss, Max Arnau, who introduced her to studio head Harry Cohen. Like Beth Short, Gene suddenly became famous, but not in the way she'd dreamed. On Wednesday, October 7th, 1949, Jean Spangler vanished and was never seen again. When she disappeared, Jean was 26 years old, a tall brunette with an oval-shaped face and large, dark eyes. She'd been raised in Los Angeles, attended Franklin High School, and got a job after graduation as a legal secretary, but gave that up to try and make it in the movie business. She was a beautiful young woman, but unfortunately, she had little to set her apart from the scores of other beautiful young women who arrived in Hollywood every day. Of course, until the unthinkable happened. 
On October 7th, Jean left her home on Colgate Avenue in the Park La Brea apartment complex near Wilshire Boulevard around 5 p.m. She left her daughter with her sister-in-law, Sophie Spangler, who lived with Jean, her mother, daughter, and her brother. She told Sophie that she was going to meet her former husband to talk about his child support payment that had been due a week before, then go on to work on a movie set. Jean had recently finished work on a small role in the romantic comedy, The Petty Girl, and had been in a good mood. She seemed nervous, though, as she kissed her daughter goodbye and left the house. She was wearing a wool blouse, green slacks, and a white coat. And that was the last time Jean's family ever saw her. When Jean failed to return home that night, Sophie became worried. Jean had a number of friends and went out a great deal, but she'd never failed to telephone home to check in, much less stay out all night. Jean's mother was visiting family in Kentucky at the time, so Sophie went to the Wilshire Division of the LAPD and filed a missing persons report the next day. Believing that Jean would turn up, the Wilshire police didn't bother to send a missing persons report on the teletype right away. In fact, another day would pass before detectives began searching for her. Gina told Sophie that she was going to work on a movie set after she met with her former husband, but the police checked and found that none of the studios had any work in progress or were even open on the evening of October 7th. The next day, they checked into her story about meeting her ex-husband, Dexter Benner. Gina had been through a long custody battle with him and had won custody of Christine from him in 1948. Police questioned Benner about her statement to her sister-in-law that she was going to meet him about the overdue child support payment. Well, he said he hadn't seen his former wife for several weeks. His new wife, Lynn Lasky Benner, stated that he was with her at the time of Jean's disappearance. Two days after she vanished on October 9th, Jean's purse was found near the Ferndale entrance to Griffith Park. Both of the straps on one side had been torn loose as if it had been ripped from her arm. There was no money inside, which was expected since Sophie told the police that Jean had no money when she left the house, but it did contain her membership cards in the Screen Actors Guild, the Screen Extras Guild, her driver's license, and a curious note. The note read, Kirk, can't wait any longer. Going to see Dr. Scott. It will work out best this way while mother is away. Comma. The note ended with a comma and was apparently unfinished. A police handwriting expert, though, was able to determine the note was in Jean's handwriting. More than 60 police officers and over 100 volunteers searched the park, but no other clues were found. Detectives began working to track down any leads they could find about Jean's life, and an all-points bulletin was issued. Photographs of the young woman were sent to newspapers, and soon witnesses began to come forward, disclosing the secrets of the aspiring actress's tangled and complicated life. One of those witnesses was the Hollywood attorney, Albert Pearlson, who had employed Jean as a legal secretary for a short time. She had married plastics manufacturer Dexter Benner in 1942 in a whirlwind wartime romance. Pearlson told detectives that about six months after the wedding, Jean came to him looking for a divorce. Pearlson urged her to wait, but Jean was insistent, claiming Benner had been cruel to her. A complaint was filed, but the couple reconciled, and the divorce hearing was removed from the calendar. Benner went to the army during the war, and about six months after he left, Christine was born. Then, after she had broken into the movies as a bit player, Jean began to be seen around Hollywood night spots. In 1944, Benner was discharged from the military and he sent word to Jean that he was coming home. Even though she no longer worked for him, Jean came to Pearlson and pleaded with him for help. 
She'd apparently fallen in love with a first lieutenant in the Army Air Corps. Benner was under the impression that she had saved the money he'd been sending to her and that she owned a car. However, Jean had spent all the money and had wrecked the car months before. Pearlson agreed to help her, and when Benner returned to L.A., Jean met him when he arrived and brought him straight to Pearlson's office to tell him she wanted a divorce. Benner agreed, and custody of Christine was initially given to him. Four days later, Jean returned to Pearlson's office with a black eye and a bruised face. She said that her boyfriend had beaten and threatened to kill her if she ever left him like she had left her husband. Well, the lawyer called him and issued a warning, but didn't hear from Jean again until a year later. By that time, she'd broken off the affair with the Air Corps officer and wanted Pearlson to help her file suit to regain custody of her daughter. She lost the suit, but filed papers again in May 1948 and won. Menner decided not to fight the second time around. Pearlson convinced him that Jean was a troubled young woman and having Christine might help her. Well, other witnesses also came forward, including the owner of a store near where Jean lived. A cashier at the store, Lillian Marks, said that Jean had wandered around the place for a few minutes around 5.30 p.m. on October 7th as if she was waiting for someone. She saw no one approach her, and she didn't notice when Jean left. On Wednesday evening, the night she disappeared, she was reported at the Cheese Box restaurant on Sunset Boulevard by Al the Sheik Lazar, a Hollywood radio personality who knew Jean and did a nightly radio broadcast from the Cheese Box. Lazar saw her sitting in a booth around midnight with two men he didn't recognize. When he approached the table, planning to put Jean on the air, he noted that she, quote, appeared to be arguing with the two men, and one of them waved him away, signaling that they didn't want to be interrupted. Terry Taylor, the proprietor of the Cheese Box, confirmed LeVar's story and also recalled that Jean was there with two men and that they left together shortly after midnight. It was the last time that anyone saw Jean alive or dead. The only definite clue the police had to work with was the mysterious note, but neither Jean's family nor her friends knew anyone named Kirk or Dr. Scott. When Jean's mother returned to Los Angeles, she told police that someone named Kirk had picked up Jean at her home at least twice, but he stayed in the car and didn't come inside. Police searched for Kirk, and the only person in the Hollywood community they could think of with that name was Kirk Douglas, who had starred in the recent film Young Man with a Horn, in which Jean had a small part. Douglas was vacationing in Palm Springs and heard about the disappearance. He called the police and told them he was not the Kirk mentioned in the note. Douglas was interviewed by the head of the investigating team and stated that he'd heard of Jean Spangler, who'd been an extra in his latest film, but he didn't know her personally. He said he didn't remember her at all until a friend reminded him she'd been in the film. He told detectives, quote, if she's the one I'm thinking about, I remember talking to her, but I never saw her before or since, and I never went out with her. Exhausting their leads in the search for Kirk, the police turned to finding Dr. Scott. They questioned every doctor in LA with the last name Scott, but none of them had a patient named Spangler or Benner. Some of Jean's friends told the police they suspected she had been pregnant when she disappeared and that she had talked to one or two of them about getting an abortion, which was illegal at the time. The police talked with several people who frequented the same nightclubs and bars that Jean did and who told them they had heard there was a former medical student known simply as Doc who would perform abortions for money. Well, police searched for Doc with the idea that Jean had gone to him for an abortion and died as a result, but they couldn't locate him or even anyone who would say they'd actually met him. The idea of Jean getting an abortion while her mother was out of town did seem to make sense in conjunction with the note, though. But nothing solid ever came from this line of investigation. 
This didn't stop the rumors from swirling about Jean's possible pregnancy, though. Most of those rumors involved Jean becoming pregnant, going to see a Hollywood abortionist, and dying during a botched operation. Her remains were hidden, the stories went, and she was never found. It is worth noting, though, as listeners heard in our last episode, Beth Short was also believed to have been pregnant when she fled Los Angeles for San Diego in late 1946. Unfortunately for Beth, she came back and, well, was dead a short time later. As the investigation was running into dead ends in Los Angeles, tips began coming in from places that kept the investigators busy. Each one of them was checked out over the weeks and months that followed, no matter how flimsy or how strange. Rumors had her in Mexico City, the San Fernando Valley, Yuma, Arizona, San Francisco, and Fresno. A psychic contacted the police and offered her services, and another man claimed that he could locate her body with a radar gadget. After three weeks, the case seemed to be at a dead end. The only thing we've been able to find out, one detective wearily told reporters, is that this girl really got around. Among the many people she got around with were wealthy nightclub owners, a rich playboy, a prominent professor, an assortment of actors and jet-setters, and David Little Davy Ogle, a henchman of gang boss and Gene's old pal, Mickey Cohen. Ogle was last seen in Palm Springs. Mickey Cohen and his crowd had a long history of vacation and partying in Palm Springs, and Ogle, who was under indictment for conspiracy, had disappeared two days before Gene did. This led police to investigate the possibility that Gene had left town and met Ogle in Palm Springs, then left California with him. But this was just a guess. Gene wasn't in Palm Springs, and no one admitted to knowing where she'd gone. Four months later, the case took another turn when a U.S. customs agent in El Paso, Texas, reported shadowing a woman he thought was Gene Spangler in the company of Davy Ogle and Frank Nicoli, another Cohen associate, who'd also been under indictment for conspiracy and who'd also vanished a month before Ogle. An employee at the hotel where the trio stayed also identified Gene Spangler from her photograph. The customs agent told the LA cops that he had every reason to believe that Gene had left El Paso for Las Vegas. But was it really her? Who knows? Eyewitness reports continued to arrive at LAPD headquarters. Gene was still being spotted everywhere. Northern California, Phoenix, Mexico City, several times in Palm Springs, but all those leads led nowhere. And soon the case turned ice cold. The police were never able to identify any secret boyfriend or the mysterious doctor. It seemed likely that at some point, Gina got mixed up in something that probably led to her death. The authorities continued the search and circulated Gene's picture for several years in an unsuccessful attempt to find her, but nothing ever turned up. Most veteran detectives came to believe that she was dead. Following Gene's disappearance, a bitter custody battle for Christine began between Dexter Binner and Gene's mother, Florence. The courts awarded the child to her father, but Florence was given visitation rights, which Binner fought against. He claimed in his suit that Christine had been abandoned by her mother and that Florence was a negative influence on her. The case wore on until 1953 when Benner simply moved away with his wife and child. He died in 2007, but Christine and his other children are still living. Not every detective gave up on the idea of finding Gene Spangler alive. Nationwide bulletins were still issued for years after she vanished, and Florence Spangler periodically appealed to the press for information about her daughter's fate. She even enlisted the aid of gossip columnist Luella Parsons, who appeared on television with photos of Gene and offered a $1,000 reward for information. 
but no information ever came. And Florence, who hung on to the desperate hope that Jean might still be alive, eventually resigned herself to the fact that her daughter had been murdered. To this day, Jean Spangler is still listed as a missing person with the Los Angeles Police Department, and her case file remains open. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place by working more efficiently, by using more sustainable practices, by developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com purpose. Parker, engineering your success. If you're a woman over 40 dealing with hot flashes, insomnia, brain fog, moodiness, or weight gain, you don't have to accept it as just another part of aging. The experts at Midi Health know all these symptoms can be connected to the hormonal changes of menopause. And Midi can help with safe, effective, FDA-approved solutions covered by insurance. 91% of Midi patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. Taken oh, yeah. forever. Are you on the Wi-Fi here? No, <laughs> I was gonna I, say. I know I intentionally that I, shut I that shit down. Guarantee you that it's slow. Well, I can't get into the drive if I don't log on. Right. I don't know why, because my data works, but whatever. So, oh yeah, I don't know. Yeah. Okay. So don't let me forget to turn it back on, or I'll die <laughs> here. So. All right. You ready? Yep. You ready? Okay. Now I'm ready. Thanks for tuning into the American Hauntings podcast, the show where we discuss history, hauntings, legends, lore, and the dark side of American history. We are now in season five of the podcast, Haunted Hollywood. I'm your co-host, Cody Beck, and with me is my co-host, author, historian, crime buff, and the founder of American Hauntings, Troy Taylor. Hey, man. How's it going? Uh, it's been a long time, I feel like. It, yeah, it kind of has, hasn't it? Yeah. Uh, I didn't realize that. I think we uh, had to move some things around. We did. So the rescheduling, I think, made everything seem even further. Yeah. But, I mean, look at, you know, all the things that changed just in that amount of time. I know. Uh, the world looks like a different place. I was talking, um, I did a live stream the other day, and I was talking about how, what a difference a year makes. Yeah. In everything. I mean, a year ago now, we were all, like, locked in our houses. Well, we weren't. We were still <laughs> getting out. No, I, we did try and record a couple of long-distance podcasts. Did. And they were... It was tough. Yeah, that was hard. So... It is hard. Does yeah. it feel like it's been a... For me, I feel like it... it it does feel like a yes year. And it no. feels, yes right, and no. Yes, right, exactly. Right. It's, yeah, it's it does. So it seems like a really long time ago. On the other hand, you know, it really wasn't. But no. I was thinking this is the like the anniversary of the weekend that we had to to postpone the conference oh, last really? year. Yeah, I, I, that popped up in some of my stuff. That that's how long it had been since we had to do that. Damn. I hope we'd never have to do that again. But hey, at least we're know we're having it this year. So yeah. that's the good news. And it's already sold out. So I guess that's it's good news for us, bad news for everybody who decided that they would wait 
to get tickets until they made sure it was closer. Shouldn't have been yep, sleeping on it. Shouldn't have been yep. waiting. So, unfortunately, uh, it is sold out. So we'll, uh, you know, hey, we'll be back next year. Yeah. So well, and was, back in June <laughs> is where it's supposed to be. Okay, so that's sold out. But yes. there's other stuff people can still. Oh yeah, buy yeah, yeah, yeah. For, right? We um, right now we're we're really pushing all of our summer ghost hunts uh, mm-hmm. that we've got. Um, Indiana, Ohio, Missouri, Iowa. We got a bunch of stuff coming up soon. Nice. Um, so we're we're pushing that, and people are are getting on it. They're if they're they're filling up uh, because people want to get out and do stuff, right? You know, and that's one thing we were able to do last year for the most part is because you know, except for early on in the pandemic, you know, our groups were always kept pretty small, so mm-hmm. that worked out pretty well, but. Uh, we also have some uh, of those dinner and spirits events coming up. Uh, July third, we've got the Donner Party dinner at the hotel, <laughs> so which jokes. I know, I know the Donner Party dinner. I swear that we are not serving pork of any kind. Mm-hmm. You know, you can um, that. Uh-huh. uh huh. And haunted hotels, Wyatt Earp, uh, the Hell Hath No Fury one, uh, which is the the women who you know. Predators and prey. That's mm-hmm. the best way to look at My it. My kind so, of woman. Yeah, we got a couple of uh, Ghost of the River Road tours that we added for August because all the other ones sold out. Yeah, I'm going to um, do a River Road tour. Yeah, again. you it's need to come do it again. So we've got one on the 13th of August and the 28th of August. And of course, we'll have stuff, you know, coming up in the fall. Mm-hmm. But for now, that's what we've got on the schedule. And our tours are running in Alton and they're running in Chicago again. So uh, we are starting back up everywhere that you know things have been closed down for a while yeah. but they're they're back up and running so yeah it's been great awesome how are the uh, how are the new books moving uh, along? well nevermore uh-huh. turned out to be the the biggest selling title we've ever had no shit and i had no idea i mean that was the secret project that i right. didn't tell anybody what i was doing and um yeah i i i mean it's got to be the subject matter obviously sure. people get excited about poe and um yeah it um it just went crazy that's I mean, awesome we just kept having more and more and more printed we just couldn't keep up mm-hmm. uh but i think we're all caught up now i think anybody that's ordered it has either got it or will have it very soon uh but uh, hey there's always more so if you don't have right. it yet um check it out uh, i think you'd like it based on what i'm hearing from people it was a fun book to write that's all i can base it on i, yeah. I you know i'm not gonna go back and reread it so you know <laughs> i uh i i've already i've already read it so i don't need to read it again but Anyway, if you're interested in any of the, the dinner events or the dinner tours or anything, you can go to dinnerandspirits.com, which is pretty easy to find. Or you can just go to americanhauntings.net. Mm-hmm. Everything is right there. So you can find uh, all the stuff we do on our main website. Perfect. Well, yeah. all, all of our... Um begging and pleading got us a lot of listener reviews <laughs> yeah, <I know> um, <laughs> which I really really appreciate again helps feed my ego helps me sleep at night um, some of them help keep me up at night but for the most part you know it's it's really nice to hear all the nice things people have been saying so I'm going to dive into a couple of these this first one is from Ali Ava it's titled Happy Haunting it says looking forward to reading the book I ordered on our camping vacation which may not be a great idea but campfires and ghost stories go together right appreciate the time and research done for each podcast with all the exaggerated ghost shows available it's nice to have a show that doesn't chase the fantastical but tells the real story of the past thank you for that this next one's from Just Jesse G it's titled Thank You it says as a history buff with an affinity for the macabre I love this podcast I've thoroughly enjoyed the banter and really appreciate Troy's need to be accurate and in-depth with the history 
history and true in the truth in the monologue. Oh, uh, it says, oh, oh, and the outro is my favorite, and episode 43 <laughs> was my favorite. Uh, so thank you for that. <laughs> and I looked it up, and I think that was when it, me, you, and Lisa went in about angels and stuff and oh, had that God. whole argument. Oh, I, I think that's what it was referring to. Um, glad Lisa's not here right now. But just, <laughs> um, and then this last one's from Kimmy N. It's titled Awesome Podcast. It says, love the podcast. Your banter is hilarious. And that's debatable, but <laughs> in, informative both on the ghost story and the history side. I'm listening to this new season, Troy's comments about how Hollywood just destroys people made me think of the song Hollywood from System of the Down. Yeah. Keep up the amazing work, and I'm excited about all to come. Kimberly. So thank you so much for all those reviews. They really they really help. Um, you know, they just help me feel good, and they help people find the show, you know? <laughs> yeah. So I really like that. So let's dive into... I was trying to explain this to my mom earlier, actually, and then she's like, what's this episode about that you're doing? And I was like, you know, it's kind of about the forgotten ones. It is. You it's know? kind of a... Yeah, I mean, it is sort of a sequel to the Black Dahlia episodes, but it's the it's the lesser knowns. Yeah. I mean, and that that's kind of why I wanted to include some of this stuff is because, you know, there were, you know, other horrific murders that were going on at the time, obviously. So these I, are brutal We described hell. them, I know, um, but none of them got the attention that the Black Dahlia did. I mean, it just had... I mean, it had everything going for it as far as, you know, it was the, the first, and it really wasn't the first. Right. Because Georgette Bauerdorf was killed before Beth, mm -hmm. but you just, um, Two you years, just didn't, right? yeah, you just didn't hear about it um, until, you know, this happened. And this was the one that, for whatever reason, just got the attention of newspapers, got the attention of the public, and people just were really wrapped up in this one. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I mean, it, it just, it had everything going forward as far as what's going to get people's attention. And right. there's just, but there were so many, there were so many others. And this just scratches the surface. There's more. Sure. Um, I just dug into a couple of them more in depth and miss, you know, mentioned some of the other ones in passing. Right, right. So, so so many murders in the in the late 40s, and so law enforcement officers thought they might be connected, leading reporters to eventually dub them the werewolf murders, which mm -hmm. is a pretty dope name. Right, um, that's what I thought, too. I don't know where it came from, but yeah. it's a good, you know, wh where they came up with the idea to call it that. But right. uh, it does work. It, it certainly does. got people's attention, which is what the reporters wanted it does. out of the whole thing, is and, to get attention. And so. Yes, yes. And we'll, we're going to get into some of the naming conventions later. I think I have a couple jokes <laughs> lined up. i got to remember, but... Um, so let's, we're going to start off with, um, in 1944, a friend of Beth Shorts who volunteered with her at the Hollywood Canteen was Georgette Bauerdorf. Um, it was here that Beth met actor uh, Arthur Lake, mm -hmm. and Georgette also knows Arthur Lake, so that's kind of a connection that they have. Right. Beth eventually started dating Lieutenant Joseph Fickling, which we talked about before, which is, I, I, you said it's against the rules, I guess? Yeah, well, of... the Hollywood Canteen was like a USO type kind of thing, so oh, okay. it, was, it was meant to be, you know, a lot of the people who... You know, the, the hostesses, not the junior hostesses, which were just pretty girls like Georgette and Beth. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I mean, Beth's big thing was free meal, you right, know, but right, right. also because I'm sure it was a great place to meet servicemen and we know what a hang up she had on that. Uh, but crazy the, about a sharp yeah, man, but, you know? right. But the, the idea was is that you had like Hollywood stars who would do volunteer work, mm -hmm. looked good in the paper, it looked good in the gossip columns. And I'm sure that a lot of them did it with good intentions. I'm not saying it was all right, about right, right. publicity, uh, but it was a good way to get publicity. Yeah, why so, not both? Yeah. Right. So you're at the Hollywood Canteen and you're feeding and slinging drinks for young guys. It's, it's kind of a charity thing. Mm -hmm. And so it was against the rules for the, the junior hostesses to get hooked up with these guys uh, okay. because, well, it's the 1940s and it invites problems sure. and trouble and they didn't want any kind of scandal 
hitting the canteen because that was going to look bad. Got it. Okay, yeah. okay. So we talked about it in our last episode, but Beth eventually pieces out. Um, shortly after that, Georgette's body is found floating in a bathtub of her apartment. Well, actually, reverse. Go, go the other way. Reverse it. Um, Beth, after Georgette was killed, that, that may okay. have been the reason Got that it. Beth skated and went back to oh, I'm Massachusetts. Sorry. I'm no, sorry. No, no, that's I see, okay. I said shortly after yeah, his no, no. departure. I just right. had it wrong but it's, in my head. It's, no, it's, yeah, and it was the other way around, and, you know, it's thought that maybe it scared her off, yeah. which I could kind I, of, I definitely understand. I could see that, yeah. yeah. Uh, so we're going to talk about a little bit how the murders are linked. So it's revealed by L.A. Herald Express writer Aggie Underwood, who loved to shake things up. Pretty much, yes, I guess you yes. would say. And there was a great book that came out about her a she year or awesome. two ago. Um, there's a um, a woman who does a, a blog called Deranged LA, and she wrote a book about Aggie Underwood, and it's phenomenal. Mm. Um, because she was like one of those, you know, uh, dames of the 1940s, didn't take any shit from anybody, yeah. and, you know, went on, as, as mentioned in this article, becomes the first city editor mm-hmm. by a woman in any major metropolitan area. Right. And, um, yeah, she was the one who dug up and made the connections mm-hmm. between all these murders with the idea of here's all these people that have been forgotten. You know, we're yeah. we're digging into Beth Short, but what about all these other girls and what the hell are the police doing sure. during this time? And that's that's what actually started those grand jury mm-hmm. hearings that we've talked about in past episodes about Beth. Yep. Um, that's what exposed all that and put them on the hot seat. So they weren't happy about this. And then when Aggie started making connections between the murders and started calling the police into question and it shook up some of the people that were, you know, the big people Mm -hmm. in Hollywood. And so what did they do? They went to Hearst, you know, and said, Hey, you got to shut this down. And so he did. Right. And yeah. And so you talked about her getting that promotion. And also I was, I was kind of thinking about that. And it's like, what's she going to do? She's going to stick her neck out to probably still not get these people's names out there or rise up through the ranks, you know, and have a better chance at, well, she always wondered, I think, I know. And yeah, and and, she did the right thing. And I get that, but you know what? I think she did the right thing. Um, so some of the other women that were murdered that she was trying to make everybody, you know, not forget, uh, Lila, Adele, Dorothy Welsh, uh, Jean, French. French. Okay, yeah. so the red lipstick murder, also holy fuck, I put in my notes. Uh, yeah, it's it's that one was pretty brutal, and that happened um, just a month after Beth was killed, mm. and so initially the police immediately assumed it must be connected because sure. uh, they found her naked. She had been tortured thrown into a ditch, but of course the method of murder was completely different, Mm -hmm. but someone had written a message on it, on the body. So they were kind of like, oh, you know, this seems like, could this be connected? Because by this time, you know, someone had mailed in that stuff to the newspapers Mm -hmm. of Bath's, you know, some of her belongings and the letters had started to come in. And so people wondered if they were connected, but they were not. Yeah, and then Mrs. Brown, uh, 20 and pregnant, killer then goes and eats breakfast. Uh-huh. Reminds me of the Velisca kind of stuff. Right, right. Uh, November 15th, 1944, two murders at separate hotels. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's just, just yeah. so I'm in a hotel right now, and, yeah, you know, yeah. just fingers yeah. crossed. Yeah. Right. Um, Virgie Lee Griffin and Lillian Johnson uh, both hacked up to pieces. The killers caught later that day of Lillian, or if, of Lillian at least, um, chatting up another woman at a local bar. Did he kill both of them? Or yeah. Was it, oh, oh. Yeah, no, he killed them both. Um, he killed one, Damn. then he killed the other, and then went to have a drink and when the cop just you know was just canvassing the neighborhood Mm -hmm. just some uniform guy and he goes into this bar and sees a guy who matches the description of the killer sitting at the bar trying to pick up another woman Mm -hmm. and he just why he just walks over and handcuffs him and i you know i said in the in the 
the monologue that if you had written that into a script, yeah. the producer would have went, okay, you got to <laughs> yeah, no take way. that out. That's stupid. Uh, but that's exactly what happened. And that's how they got him. And within, you know, the first murder had been discovered by two and by seven thirty, he'd it confessed. Yeah, it just so it was like a, a it was a banner day for the LAPD, and yeah. they didn't have many of them at the time. So oh, it was good, man. And then so back to Georgette Bauerdorf. So the attractive young daughter of wealthy Wall Street financier um, George Bauerdorf, and or, an oil guy, a close mm-hmm. friend of Aggie's boss William Randolph Hearst, whom right. we've talked about before. Right. She was she'd been beaten, raped, asphyxiated with the cloth um, in her throat, and left a running bathtub. Um, why leave the tub running? Are you gonna get caught? Well, that's that they. Way? Well, but they they think he that he was off. interrupted. That something happened, and it's very possible that he did because there was a neighbor who came home mm-hmm. and saw Stella Adler. As a matter of fact, the the uh, the acting teacher, very famous acting teacher, okay. lived in the same building as Georgette. It was a really nice apartment building. And uh, she said that she had walked by and saw Georgette's door open uh, around midnight. And it's thought that maybe the killer heard her outside. Mm-hmm. Um, and maybe that's what scared him off. And he just, for whatever reason, left the bathtub running. We're not talking about a serial killer here. Or we're not, I don't think we're talking about anybody who, you know, had... It was out on a run of committing a whole bunch of murders. And, and certainly not anyone you know, devious. I think we're talking about a a one-off kind of thing here. Something happened. Mm -hmm. Um, And, you know, there were lots of things that, you know, people would say, oh, you know, Georgette was so nice to everybody. She'd bring these guys home, give them something to eat. You know, she'd give them rides. And they, you know, they kept telling her, you know, it's a bad idea. It's a bad idea. You need to be more careful. And she wasn't. And one of them, someone that she knew that she brought home with her, turned on her and killed her. Yeah. And we'll never know exactly what happened. I mean, there's no way to know. The downstairs neighbors heard noises upstairs, but big deal. Right. I mean, if you've ever lived in an apartment and you've had an upstairs neighbor, yeah, that could be anything. All day. So, uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah. Walking around all the time. I lived in this apartment one time years ago. I mean, years ago. Ooh, do tell. And um, it was a like a three-story building. I was on the second floor, which has got to be the worst. That's where um, I am, on the second floor. On the second floor. And there was someone who lived above me that I swear... She, I, I assume I'd never seen her. I'd always hear her, and I thought she must weigh four hundred pounds. I've never heard anyone stomp around like this woman did all constantly, all the time, from the time she got up in the morning, time she went to work, and you knew exactly when she got home. Mm-hmm. And believe me, you also knew if she brought a boyfriend home with her because you heard everything. This woman was so loud. And so I kept thinking, you know, I, I one of these days I'm going to watch out the window when this lady leaves for work because I've got to see what she looks like yeah. because she has got to be a beast, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, it's so loud. She leaves. She's not even five feet tall. It's this <laughs> tiny little thing in like these giant spiked heels. And I went, okay, huh. well, there it is right there. So she would wear heels in the apartment. I feel like yeah, this is the first walking around. I know up. you would think, yeah, um, I don't but wear yeah, heels that constantly, often. yeah, constantly slamming around. So, you know, the fact that they're hearing something from upstairs, big deal, yeah. you know, obviously it wasn't enough to make them go up and look to see what it was, right. you know, but they did realize when, you know, something bad had happened that, you know, obviously, you know, they had heard the murder taking place, sure. you know, Oh man, that actually reminds me. I was uh, I had my dad over not too long ago, and we went for a walk around my apartment complex. There's like a little trail around some water, and we heard this two of them, this blood curdling screams. Oh, and it was the middle of the day, yeah. and I couldn't tell exactly where they were coming from. And I was like, 
what do I do? Yeah. I, can't, I can't call what the cops and be like, one right. of these apartments, uh-huh. you know, had somebody. Right. But I mean, they were screaming like crazy and then nothing. Yeah. So I always wonder, like, yeah. am I going to see it in the paper sometime? Like, <laughs> right, you know? right. Uh, anyway, so Aggie features this story on the front page of the Herald Express with a headline that read, quote, werewolves leave trail of women murder victims in L.A., end quote. Uh, this is, reminds me of a joke. Like I saw a meme about like you had to stop calling like serial killers and things like cool names like the night stalker like uh-huh. they call him like the erectile dysfunction maniac or <laughs> right, something right, right? Right, right like you know to like not incentivize people well, you know that's badass names. but that's i don't did you i think you watched that we both watched that manhunter series was yeah, it yeah. manhunter was that mind hunter mind hunter that was i kept on. calling it manhunter and it was too. the early you know beginning of the of the um you know, the behavioral science yeah. unit at the fbi and, you know, they, they used to do that a lot. They'd get on TV and call those guys out and then talk about all the things that, that was wrong with them. Uh-huh. Oh, well, you know, he can't get it up, so he's murdering people. And that could, just to provoke them into doing something. Right. And then that turned out to be a bad idea <laughs> because true. then he would go out and slaughter more people. Yeah. Just say, hey, look, look what I did, you know. Uh. So sometimes giving them too much attention is a bad idea. But it's the 1940s and they needed... Well, you know, America wanted something to focus on. We just come out of a war, yep. you know, where every single day there were all these headlines and all these stories about everything that was going on overseas. And so now, what do you write about? You know, in L.A., you're writing about all these murders that are happening because, yeah. and that's the other thing is, and I didn't get too deep into this, but with all of these murders that were going on around that same time, mm-hmm. it's been surmised, and I would have to agree, that these killers, killer slash killers and because i definitely think it was more than one uh were probably guys coming home from the war oh. that were all fucked up yeah from you know killing a bunch yeah, of other people ptsd kind of thing coming home and you know this the violence that they've been involved in for two three four years yeah now they're coming home and you know they're messed up and it's thought that that might have been the reason for this big spike in mm-hmm. murders at the time, huh. which totally makes sense. Yeah, you know, I could see that. Uh, so if okay, so it was hard to deny the links between the murders of Beth and Georgette, even with uh, a couple of years in between them. You go into some of the details. Born mm, in twenty four, sure. you know, had dark hair, made friends easily, liked men in uniform, all that. Georgette's body's found by the building managers, the Atwoods, on October eleventh, nineteen forty four. Mentioned before, you know, they heard some noises upstairs, mm-hmm. not enough to really uh, do much. Uh, her car is eventually found three days later, and she starts to kind of work backwards as far as like the last time she was seen alive. So they saw her around 10.30 p.m. The cops eventually find tons of prints, even on an outside light bulb, which is why you talked about maybe it was somebody she knew right. that unscrewed that so nobody could, you know, or couldn't see the Someone face. Someone else would see them, yeah. Right, yeah. right. Um Aggie noticed the connection between the two women in the bathtubs. I don't really know. Is that's that a, that's like, a very loose link. Right. But, you know, when you're putting together a story, why Sure. Not? Oh, yeah. yeah One know. of them kind of seems like necessity. <laughs> like, we need some place to chop this lady up. <laughs> right, and the other, right. yeah. yeah. Uh, Georgette's diary then connects her to Beth and, Ar- and Arthur Lake, as we mentioned before, a celebrity who played Dagwood in the Blondie series. Yeah, do you even remember that comic strip? I've always heard. I have of- never seen the movies. Apparently, there were okay. 28 of them. I had no idea. Yeah, I got I've, very I didn't even know, honestly. I didn't even, and this is somebody who takes pride in yeah, all you the movies. Shit. And it's like, there there were movies of that? <laughs> you know, I had no idea. I've never seen one, but I do remember the comic strip. I, that's the only you know, thing I'm familiar with. Because remember, he would he always eat the giant sandwiches? And See, I don't even know yeah, that much. So, I just I mean, know the name. You know, when she was like a real, she was like a really good looking kind of flapper blonde. I and he was a it. dork. I'm sure I you would. You know, I, I mean, mm. he was like a real goofball 
kind of guy and she was the smart one and okay. it's a, it was funny yeah. i mean you know it was it was okay it would was it hold a comic up today strip. or would it only be funny in 1942 uh, yeah i don't know um but, but i hate they still had it around not that long ago uh because i mean i say that and it i probably mean 20 years but <laughs> right right i don't remember the last time i read the comics in the paper since well yeah i do was they quit showing when they quit having calvin and Hobbes. i quit reading and i understand that um so but anyway i i don't i have never seen the movies but so i had, really had to look this guy up mm-hmm. but um you know he, he you know he was i don't he comes across as kind of sketchy but also sure. like sketchy in a way that you know, do you know who I am? Sketchy, right, you know, right. that kind of thing, you know, because he looks at the cops to make sure that they know that, you know, his wife is the niece of Marion Davies right, and right. Um, and a close friend of Hearst. And in other words, you need to leave me alone. Right. Well, why you know? wouldn't he like he was a friend of Hearst, too. Why would he leave that kind of stuff out? I mean, I yeah. guess he's playing a certain angle. But yeah, well, I mean, you know, the the the. It's always been inferred that he might have had something to do with this. Mm-hmm. Or, or if he didn't, that he might have known something sure. and just didn't want to get involved in the investigation. No one really knows. But, I mean, there are links between him and Beth and Georgette. Mm-hmm. But that was back when they were trying to say that it was all one killer. Right, you know? right. And in this particular case, th- there were other people more closely connected to Beth than Arthur Lake. He was more connected to Georgette, but... No one could ever make anything stick. Right, so, right, but, right. I mean, it's it's never going to be solved, <laughs> ever. I, I just have so. it in all caps. It says, what was he hiding? Um, I guess yeah, I was angry yeah. at the time. Yeah. So, yeah. we mentioned, Aggie tried to write a story about all this. The story's killed. She's mad, so they promoted her to keep her quiet. And my note just says, do what you can with the cards you're dealt, queen. Yeah, right, right. Um, all right, let's move on to some more murders. Um, <laughs> the murder of uh, Jean Elizabeth Spangler. Well, we assume she was murdered. Because her body was We don't really know, found. because she was never found, but she did disappear. She disappeared. Wow. So she works to support her daughter at the Florentine Gardens, as we mentioned before. Mm-hmm. This is where Jean met uh, Benny Siegel's second-in-command, Mickey Cohen, who we've talked about yeah, off and on for a while. Him. Yeah, quite, or about him. Through yeah. these connections, she begins getting parts, eventually gains some fame, but not in a good way. <laughs> and she vanishes on October 7th, 1949. So on October 7th, she leaves to go meet her former husband to talk about child support and to well, work on a movie she set. Told, that's what she Correct. told her sister. No so. studios have any record of this. Her right. ex-husband's like, hey, I haven't seen her. Her purse is found at Griffith Park two days later. Uh, what else happened at Griffith Park that we talked about? Uh, well, lots of stuff. I mean, it's on the edge of, I mean, that's where the Hollywood sign Okay, is so that's where the woman yeah. jumped. Okay. Yeah, Peg Whistle jumped off. Got there, it. Because yeah. I had a friend that was there while we were recording that episode. Yeah. I remember texting yeah. her being like, yeah. hey, look, tell me if you see a ghost. <laughs> yeah. Um, they find her purse. It contains a note that says, quote, Kirk can't wait any longer going to see Dr. Scott. It will work out best this way while mother is away. End quote, and it's unfinished. Right. Which yeah, it ends means, with a comma. Yeah, it ends with a comma, right? Well, so at least she had good, you know, good grammar. grammar skills, yeah. You know, I so, appreciate a good comma, yeah. a good Oxford comma when yeah. it's necessary. And I don't, I, and I don't think that was, maybe it was meant to be a period. Maybe it is a period and mm. it looked like a comma. I don't know. It doesn't matter either way because <laughs> this note still doesn't make any sense. Right. Since they couldn't find anyone named Kirk or a Dr. Scott, it never Didn't ended matter. up mattering. So, yeah, witnesses start to come forward telling secrets. Uh, this is why you never talk. Talk to the police. No, I'm kidding. I'm 80% kidding. Um, Albert Pearlson, an attorney who uh, employed Jean, told the story of her wanting to divorce her husband. Then he shipped Who off. immediately violated her client 
confidentiality. Oh yeah, I yeah. mean like immediately. Just I mean yeah, just she's over. missing. I didn't even. Th- she's I didn't even think dead. About that. I mean, it's not like she died. It's, yeah. You know, I mean, it, it's like her confidentiality died with her. We didn't even know if she was dead. This guy comes and tells the cops everything about her personal life and her divorce. Mm, and I guess if everything. she was really worried about her, maybe he thought uh, maybe, it was worth it. You know, maybe he thought it was worth it. I suppose. Yeah. I mean, it wasn't like she'd done anything. Really right. Wrong, right. So. So her husband ships off. When he comes back, she immediately takes him to the attorney um, to get a divorce. But she had also fallen for a first lieutenant in the army. So it gets a little messy. Yeah. Um, her husband thought that she had been saving money that he'd sent her. But really, she spent it on a car and wrecked it. <laughs> yeah. And then when the husband returns, they go to get a divorce. She returned four days later, all beat up. But she says it's from the boyfriend. Right. Correct. Right. OK. There's a lot, uh-huh. a lot going on here. I know. There's. Yeah. She she's a, a little more complicated than yeah. just some girl who disappeared. One right. Day. So. A store owner comes forward saying that Jean had wandered around her place on October 7th as if she was waiting for somebody but nobody ever appeared, or at least they didn't notice anybody. Uh, Al the Sheik Lazar, a Hollywood radio personality, noticed her in a booth at the, at the Cheese Box. The Cheese Box. Uh, what something a name. about that. I know, I, I thought that too, and I thought, it doesn't sound like any place I want to go eat. No, and I no. like cheese, but yeah. the Cheese Box, just, I don't know, it just uh, it turned me off. Don't I, you, in the vault, don't you have some cheese boxes? Yeah, oh yeah, yeah, wooden, the, the wooden cheese boxes. Yeah. I mean, we, we used to use them when we had our old store, we would use them to put like spices in them and yeah, stuff. Yeah, they look, they look good. They look cool, but it's like, why would you name a restaurant that? It's a I, different time, yeah, I guess. Yeah, I guess. Uh, so he sees, sees her at the Cheese Box with two men he didn't recognize. Uh, she appears to be arguing with the two men, and one of them kind of waved him away, shoes him away. The owner confirmed the story and said that Jean left with the two men shortly after midnight. The owner who was a uh, relative of mine. No Just shit. Just kidding. I'm joking. Oh. His name was Terry Taylor. Oh, I mean, come that's on. something people have called oh, me. Right. If I'm not Terry, I'm Tim. So sometimes Todd. So Todd? Yeah. I get Corey a lot. Yeah. Uh, both the Kirk and Dr. Scott leads went cold, as you mentioned. Her friend suspected something interesting that she might be pregnant. And this tends to be like a common thread. Kind of makes thread. sense. Yeah. And it does kind of make sense yeah, because, so- you know. If, if I can't wait any longer, I'm going to see a doctor and I'm going to take care of it when my mother's out of town. Mm-hmm. That that sounds like, you know, sketchy back alley abortion. Right. In the 1940s. Sure. You know. Yeah. Yeah. And the pregnancy like seems to be a common thread in these stories. Yeah, it has. I have the usual kooks and quacks come through with tips and such. Four months later, <laughs> a uh, U.S. Customs agent in El Paso reported shadowing a woman he thought was Jean with Davy Ogle. Yeah. And yeah. Frank Nicoli. Uh, was it really her? Who knows? Probably, maybe. Maybe what do you uh, think? we don't know. Um, I don't know. You know, these. I, I'm going to guess these guys were a couple of Mickey Cohen's guys. They sure. probably walked around with good-looking girls all the time. <laughs> Tons of women. I mean, it could have been anybody. Um, and it, it, w- there wasn't anything to even imply that she'd been kidnapped with, with, when she was with these guys, right? Because she did know him. I mean, she had kind of dated. Ogle just a little at least rumor had it that she dated him but I don't know if she did but Mm -hmm. that was a rumor and so uh, you know people uh, you know all of these stories we've ever talked about and I've written about so many different people who've gone missing over time they always are seen in different places all over the world you know people will see them everywhere and there's just no way to know if any of the sightings are accurate Mm -hmm. I mean this guy thought it was her and that you know but and who knows? You know, we no way to knowing. Right. I mean, how 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 
How easy would it be for you? Let's say that you read a newspaper story about someone that was missing. And four months later, you were in El Paso, Texas. And yeah. you, yeah. And oh, wait a minute, I'm sure that's her. I, really? I mean, you're a customs agent. I never it's not forget like you're a, It's not like you're a cop from LA who was involved in the case. That would be something. But yeah. this is just some random guy, you know. And nine times out of 10, just like you mentioned a minute ago, every kook and weirdo comes out of the woodwork mm-hmm. to confess to things and to tell stories and to just want to be part of a story. Right. I run into that all the time with a lot of the, you know, things I write about. People just want to be part of the story, so they'll come and tell the cops anything. For all we know, that's all this was. I mean, because there was no evidence that there was even a woman there. You know, so, you know, border crossings, I think, were a little different in the 1940s, too, than they are now. Yeah, I mean, that makes sense. I guess, especially if you're going to see it in the newspaper, it's not like it's going to be sent on every screen right, and your exactly. device and your right, face. Right, right, right. Yeah, even now it would be different. Right. You know, but that's one of the things that drives me crazy when I watch a movie and, you know, somebody's wrongly accused of murder or something and they put it in the newspaper. And so, like, random people on a bus will recognize the suspect who's, you know, hiding out from the police. And you're like, nobody, nobody's going to do that. Attention. No one yeah. pays any attention. No. They don't read anything. So there's no way <laughs> they're recognizing this guy. I do that. I think that all the time. And I'm like, dude, put some sunglasses on. That's all you'd have to do. Right. They still wouldn't know it was you. So well, I think about like uh, Richard Ramirez, you know, how long it took. Oh, my God. No kidding. Finally, people yeah. started catching up. Oh, look, on, a random like, Hispanic guy in L.A. Yeah. Uh, you know. <sighs> Come on. Yeah, no, I, I get what you mean. So With a pentagram on his palm. <laughs> just kidding. <laughs> the custody- that was just for court. Yeah, I, you know what? That, That's just for dress up. He just, he gave the rest of us a bad name with all that <laughs> fake devil bullshit. And the custody battle of her child goes on for years. Her mother continued to appeal to the press for more info. He said, quote, to this day, Jean Spangler is still listed as a missing person with the Los Angeles Police Department and her case file remains open, end yep. quote. I mean, that's all I got. None of these, yeah. like most of the shit was just never solved. Oh, no, it's just and not solved. And, you know, forgotten. most of those murders, except for that, you know, except for the one, the ones we talked about were never solved. Uh, and the one that was solved was because the guy was just so dumb that he might as well have been wearing a sign that right. said, I just killed two women in a hotel. Right. You know? I wonder, <laughs> so. I'm curious about that guy, too. If um, Was it just, was this his first and second kills and he just kind of got I'm, blood I, drunk? I and, guess. But, I mean, he, he literally went into a bar two doors down from the hotel. Yeah. I mean, the other hotel was like a block or so away. And then he goes down to the next hotel, kills mm. somebody, then goes out to get a drink and try to meet up with another woman he can murder. Two doors down from the last place he killed somebody. I yeah. mean, we're not talking about a genius here. Right. You know, by any means at all. Mm. I mean, <laughs> so, still being able to pick people up after, you know, uh, yeah, killing well, two you women know, right quickly. Yeah. They got nerves of steel or that lady was a little bit off a rocker, yeah, too. Yeah, no kidding. Oh, man. Okay, so it's. Uh, I just want to give a quick shout-out to some of our new Patreon supporters. Again, it really helps us make the show sound better, make us want to keep doing this all the time. So <laughs> just shout-out uh, to Samantha, Evan, Joanna, or Johanna, I'm not sure, Leah, Lacey, Amanda, Yvonne, and Sarah. So thank you very much for being supporters of us on Patreon. It is now time for our Ghostwriters segment. If you have a question or comment about the world of the macabre, you can email us at AmericanHauntingsPodcast at gmail.com. 
Our first email comes to us from Brandon. It's titled Awesome Podcast. It says, Hi, Troy and Cody. I just wanted to drop a quick note to tell you how awesome the podcast is. Again, debatable. I first heard <laughs> about it uh, with Troy's interview about the Velisca Axe Murders on Astonishing Legends. Oh, yeah. I started listening to season three and have really enjoyed it. I'm listening to season five right now. Yes, I'm jumping around. I don't blame you. Uh, you were talking about Orson Welles and the outtakes of his Frozen Pea commercial. But have you, have you seen the cartoon that Pinky and the Brain made about the same commercial? Yes. They did yes. a shot for shot remake yeah, with did. the brain doing awesome. Orson Welles part. It's hilarious. I should have said that. It's that worth is, Googling. It's so funny. Yeah. Anyway, I, how did we get off on that? that Orson time. Welles? Oh, it's because you he was fucking, a suspect yeah, in the. Oh, yeah. yeah. And so then I started in about the wine commercials. And then you that, kept and then it going I, for the next episode. Yes, I did. And the whole time Keep we were playing. drinking at the bar in between yes. episodes. I played you the, all the commercials yes. that I could find. Yes, you did. So thank you for that. This next one comes to us from Terry. It's just titled Podcast. Says, just wanted to say that I'm new to the podcast so far. I've gotten through most of season one. Being from nearby Edwardsville, I'm familiar with most of what you're talking about. I find the area of history stories very interesting and enjoying listening very much. Orson, Orson, I'm fucking busy over here. Gotta let him just let him play out. Take special care with us Hang here with because me. they know Chablis is America's most popular wine. Parmesan Chablis. I recommend it. You're welcome. You know what I wonder now? Is that where they got the, uh, you're going to like the way you look? I guarantee it. Because that's what it reminds <laughs> it me of. It does kind of remind you of that, doesn't it? It does. Uh, thank you we for that. sell no wine before it's time. Yes. Thank you, Terry. Uh, this last one comes to us from Brandon. It's just titled Hereditary. It says, hey, Cody Troy, I found your podcast about a month ago, and I've been going through the episodes, and I really enjoy it. I just finished episode 28, and I love that you both enjoyed Hereditary. My roommate dragged me to the theater to watch it. I remember walking out of the theater, and both of us were like, what the hell did we just watch? I got Goosebumps just listening to you guys talk about it. Anyway, keep up the great work, you guys. That reminds me, we went to an early screening of Midsummer, Midsommar, however you want to pronounce it, yeah. if you're all fancy. And um, uh, my boss, like, we're, we're watching this movie, and I won't give anything away, but the opening scene is pretty intense. And my boss looks over at me, who doesn't really care for horror movies that much, and he goes, what the fuck did you bring me to? <laughs> and I was like, welcome yeah. to Warrior It, was, it is a pretty intense beginning. Yes. Right. And yeah, that one hits hard. Hey, did I tell you I saw my first movie back in the theaters? Uh, uh, no. Eight, back at the beginning of April. Oh, yeah. what did you, you see? Yeah, it was somewhat regrettable, but I went to see The Unholy, the Unholy. and I really wanted to like it. Uh-huh. It was the one, Jeffrey D. Morgan plays the reporter, and because there's somebody having like a, a, a Virgin Mary visitation. Oh. I love that kind of stuff, yeah. but yeah, it was okay. Uh, I mean, I didn't, game. I mean, it had some good things going for it, but overall, not great. But we, if anybody wants to follow, don't forget. Because I'm not going to keep talking about this stuff uh, until we get into the fall sure. when we do our episodes. But I do have that um, letterbox oh, yeah, account, yeah. Yep. and I know there. Are, I keep seeing people following me on it, so I figure that they must be podcast listeners yeah, yeah. because I try to discourage everyone else from following <laughs> you me. You tweet on there. it out there too, too sometimes. Yeah, I though. do. I do tweet it on. So it might on, be some um, of them. Yeah, on on Twitter, I will put on when I review something. But I had this movie I hated. Mm-hmm. And I gave it a bad review. See, I don't have a lot of ones I really hate yeah. because I just don't watch them. Yeah, I mean, yeah. I will watch the trailer and go, okay, someone made that with their iPhone. I'm not going to watch that. Sure. And so I don't watch it. And so then I don't get a lot of really bad reviews. But then every once in a while, I'll get fo- fooled by the trailer. Uh-huh. And I'll go, oh, that looks pretty good. Yeah. And then I watch it. I'm like, oh, my <laughs> God, I cannot believe I watched this. Um, the Resort, for instance, Um fucking terrible didn't watch it and don't it's no, really bad but anyway so i got somebody who got mad because 
I said something about somebody was a bad actor in it. They were bad. Yeah. I mean, they were bad. And this person kept like spamming me with comments no about shit. how, what do I know? I'm not an actor. You know, why you don't have, you, you have stick an IMDb to credit horror? or two? Yeah, I do. And, uh, you know, why don't you stick to horror films? And I'm like, okay, that was a horror film <laughs> and it was a really fucking bad one. <laughs> Um, but whatever. Anyway, I uh, so I just made it so you cannot comment on my stuff anymore. Yeah. So don't bother trying to comment on it. If you want to tell me something about I was wrong about something, you can send me a direct message and I'll ignore you that way. Yeah. But um, I don't I, I don't claim to be a critic. I just I'm a I'm an audience member. That's what the and app this is for. My, this is my opinion yeah. on these movies. And we have a lot of fun talking about the movies that we like yeah. of the year. So, I mean, I'm up to like, 55 horror movies already this year. I and they're all slacking. new but uh, you know they're not all good yeah of course but there are some there have been some good ones yeah there'll be more good ones now that we'll start things start yeah, opening things up start and opening back coming up. out um did God, you have s- you seen the trailer for the new conjuring movie uh no I, I think we've abandoned anything that resembles a true story really? at this point i mean it looks good mm-hmm. in a cartoon character kind of way yeah i'll watch it they just, i'm sure it'll be enjoyable but mm. let's not let's not let's leave off the based on based, a true story uh, why don't we just say it's based on two people who are nothing like this at all yeah. that once were alive right we can just do that I like, I like that you know like the john kuzak edgar Allan poe movie for instance oh yeah okay, really did that come on you yeah. know but it's a fun movie it's a great movie sure as long as you don't think it's anything in any way resembling reality right and that's where i would put the conjuring movies they they <laughs> just had the screenings for the conjuring but I, I haven't heard anything about it yet but i was gonna say did you see the trailer for uh the green knight that a24 yeah, movie yeah i'll watch that it looks great dope yeah and you know it's gonna move at a snail's pace it's a24 yes. but it'll still be good i'm sure i think it'll still be it looks good. really cool still waiting on antlers Oh yeah, Did they give us a release date. I haven't, a new release date I haven't looked yet? into it, but I haven't seen anything pop up. I don't know what they're waiting for. Well, also, no, I might as well. They might as well at least give us a date. Everything else got moved to later in the year to play it safe, which is a good idea. Sure. And then a lot of my friends, uh, the last movie that they were able to see in theaters for a screening was A Quiet Place Two. Oh and yeah. Then all the embargoes got pushed back uh-huh. a year, so they've been sitting on this movie for like a year. Yeah, it's coming it's, soon though. I it's can't this wait. month. Yeah, yeah, it is. Yeah. Um, I can't remember the date. Something opened this weekend. I can't remember what it was. Um. um no, couldn't tell yeah, you. I couldn't either. Yeah. Uh, we, I don't remember. We watched so. a movie, Without Remorse. Was that what it is? It's a Tom Clancy book. Oh, yeah, uh, I like that. Mike, with, with Michael, Michael Jordan. Jordan. I like that. Some of those yeah, kills good. were awesome. I know. It was really good. It's not yeah, a horror movie, a lot. No, it's not, but it was really good. Yeah. yeah I like Heartbreaking. Did you see that Netflix movie? Here we are. Here yeah. we go. Yeah, here we go. Um, it was like it things seen and heard or not seen and heard or something with Amanda Seyfried. No, I don't. It's, it's worth watching. Um, but I'm going to give you something that will help you enjoy the movie more because get high halfway through. No, okay. well, you can. But yeah. halfway through, I went, oh, no wonder no one had cell phones. Halfway through, you realize it's 1980. Oh, halfway and through. And no one ever mentions it. And there's <laughs> nothing that really, because you no just cars think people are driving around in like a station wagon or they're hipsters, you know. Yeah, Everybody's yeah, got fair. like old clothes, you know, and you're thinking, well, it just is doing a style thing. Right. And then about halfway through, I went. Oh, well, no wonder everybody's worried about their landline. <laughs> Why? Who has a landline? You know, um, oh, but it, 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 it's not bad. Nice. I mean, it's it's it, I wouldn't call it a classic, uh, but it is a haunted house. OK. Thriller. It's worth watching. Nice. So it was, it was good. You know so. what I've been watching? It's a really guilty pleasure, but I've, I love it now. I just realized our second season. It's uh, The Prodigal Son. You know, I hate I it. And watched, I love it. It got canceled. So I know. I know. Yeah. That's, that's what made me I watched the, the season. first season. 
And then I watched the second, I started watching the second season and then it would start to pile up on my DVR. Oh, yeah. And I'd get like two or three episodes and I'd go, because I just didn't really feel compelled to sure. try to keep up. And then, uh, so I thought, okay, well, I'll go ahead and keep up. And I'd watch a couple of them. I'm entertained by it. And then I got toward the end and they, and then I heard it was canceled. And I, well, I'm just not going to bother. Just I'm just not going to bother. Wrestling. I didn't know they had a second season until it got canceled. And yeah. I was like, oh, okay. Yeah. So at least I guess you've got a season to watch yeah. still if you want to. I'm so, halfway through yeah. the, the second season. But I, it's one of those shows where I don't know why I like it, but I like it. And I, I know. Just keep it's, going. Well, and that's kind of how I was too. I wasn't sure why I was watching it, but I was. <laughs> so whatever. Uh, I watched the new uh, Ben Wheatley movie uh, a couple nights ago, that In the Earth. In the, the guy earth. that did the kill list. I just, I'm not, really, I, I'm not you, I know you've seen stuff. Yeah, you've got to watch the kill list. I thought you'd seen it. The kill um, list. I'm not, not reading really it. It's a, it was a, it came out in like 2011, 2012. It's about these two British hit, or you think. Uh-huh. It's about these two British hitmen that are given a, a task to mur- to kill these people as a job. Oh, you did tell me about this. Yeah, you got to watch it, it man, because yeah. the ending will screw you up yeah okay um, nice. and so ben wheatley has a new movie out called in the earth and it he filmed it during the pandemic and it takes place in the woods in england and it's about these the scientist and like a park ranger who are trying to find the scientist who's doing experiments to try to cure the pandemic out in the middle of nowhere and they've lost contact with her so uh-huh. the scientist has to go out to find her and um yeah, it's messed up. Nice. I mean, it's it's, but it was good. I okay. really liked it. Yeah, I really liked it. I've I've seen some stuff lately that I, I really liked. Um, Shutter had a movie called The Boys from County Hell. Okay. It's kind of funny, but it's also scary too. But it's a it's an Irish movie about um, this about the, and it's based on a real legend about this uh, guy who was like this feudal lord who was supposed to have been a vampire mm-hmm. and that's what Bram Stoker based Dracula on uh, okay and uh, there's this cairn out in the middle of this field and the vampire is supposed to be trapped underneath it buried beneath his own soil mm-hmm. so he can't come back and they're gonna build a highway through there and they're going to knock this Karen out and Uh, this guy and his dad are running the construction crew. And it's, um, it's, it's funny. I mean, it's a funny movie, but it's also, it's got some really good stuff in it and some really original stuff, but it's on shutter. Yeah. It's definitely worth watching. I I forget that I'm still paying for shutter all the time. They've been putting a lot of new stuff on there. Some really good. And because you know how much I like foreign stuff, especially Spanish stuff. I just love it. uh, And so I found some really good stuff that way, but Scandinavian detective shows. Oh God, man. I (laughs) want I just watched one, as a matter of fact. Of course, it's fantastic. Um, but you know, Lisa's like, "What are you watching?" And I'm like, "Oh, it's this Scandinavian detective series." And she's like, oh, God again. So anyway, um, but but it's there's been some good stuff on there. So yeah. you just got to kind of pick and choose. Well, I finally you know. started to actually pull all the suggestions from people into like a spreadsheet, and because I had them all over the place, you know, it'd be text sure, from you, it'd sure. be a notes app over here. And I have like the fire sticks. I have two fire sticks. And so I can start adding things to my list. But mm-hmm. I don't know if I need to use Letterbox or what. But I do need one central location to be like, okay, well, if I'm actually going to watch stuff, like start putting it in some well, kind of I started. I started using Letterbox because I got tired of writing stuff down. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I also like if you go back to the beginning of my Letterbox from this year, it's like the the reviews are this long. Yeah. Now they're like this. Oh, now I've really? gotten carried away with some of them. So it's, then it's gotten kind of fun. Well, well so. a guy that I work with um, who loves Letterboxd, he's the guy that actually got me onto it. He um, he did a lot of that, and now he's trying to get it down to just like hilariously like pinpoint one-sentence yeah. reviews, right. which That's I've funny. really been enjoying yeah, too. Yeah, funny. 
Uh, okay. I don't know. So there we went. That, we uh, said yep. we weren't going to do that, but we did it anyway. Well, so. we're liars. Uh, that's all I got, man. All right. Cool. You want to do your whole, you know, rate, review, sure. be yeah. our friend? Yeah, yeah. So um, with that, wrapping it up, um, we want to say thanks to everybody for listening and continue to listen. Um, I don't know if our listens went up or down during lockdowns, but I haven't looked at spe- yeah, pandemic I think that, specific. I think that but, a lot yeah. of people got behind because they weren't, I, I know I did because you weren't traveling as much. Yeah. Yep, so yep. it was hard to keep up. Um, and so, the world was ending. Yeah, that too. <laughs> um, so we appreciate everybody that stuck with us through that. Now is it starting to, you know, a light at the end of the tunnel that's not an oncoming train um, <laughs> for the, with the pandemic. So we're, we're, we are grateful for that. So uh, please keep listening. Share this with your friends. Let them know if they don't listen. If you like the podcast, let them know to tune in. And if you get a chance, leave us a review on iTunes. Uh, we will not beg you like we were doing. We I'm were done. just trying to reach a number. Yeah, I don't care. Right. Anymore. And so um, but but leave it on there anyway, because it makes it easier for people to find us if we actually have reviews. Yeah, um, it does. Uh, it does help, believe it or not. So but anyway, thank you guys for listening and uh, so long. And we will see you again in a couple of weeks as we are actually. Mm-hmm. I actually gave Cody the mm-hmm. topics of the next He's four episodes. I've never done that before. I've never done that, but I needed to tell him how we were going to work it out. So uh, I did do that. So he knows what they're going to be. Mm-hmm. You don't. So you'll have to tune in. So. I take bribes. Yes. Yeah, right. If right, anyone's right. curious. Yeah. All right. Well, this episode of the American Hauntings podcast was written by Troy Taylor and it was produced and edited by me, Cody Beck. If you're not a regular listener of the podcast, we hope you'll check it out. Bi-weekly dose of history, hauntings, legends, lore. Whoa, whoa, whoa. This is Frozen Peas. Is this like six minutes long? No, it's only like four, but it's better than listening to you. Dark Side of American History. You can find and subscribe to the show on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, anywhere you listen to your favorite shows. See the the website at AmericanHauntingsPodcast.com for more info about the show, notes, photos, links, and more. If you're a regular listener, we hope you'll take time to review us on Apple Podcast app and share the show with your friends, neighbors, relatives, people you pass on the street, Orson Welles, whomever. We couldn't (laughs) and wouldn't do this show without you. If you're a fan, then you also know that American Hauntings is not just this podcast. It's books, tours, events, old commercials, and more. And our main website is AmericanHauntings.net. For those of you who write and tell us you wish that we'd posted shows more often. I can't make it stop. Well, you can have fresh content to support the show on Patreon. That's not the only perk that you get either. There are discounts, shirts, Are we done? I'm sorry. I've been trying to get a shorter thing about the For those who don't understand how important our Patreon is to us, go back and listen to the first season. And then listen to this one. Yeah, that's right. I can't tell you that this one's any better with all the interruptions. (laughs) But Patreon is what made it all get better. So check it out at Patreon.com slash AmericanHauntings. And if you have any comments about the show, suggestions, reviews, jokes, or just want to tell us what you really think about our old ass commercials, we're reachable via email on Twitter, Instagram, we Facebook. We will record no podcast before it's time. Carrier Pigeon and Telegram. Until next time, goodbye. So long. Okay, bye. See you later. <laughs> You're just going to leave me hanging there. Just, you tied the noose and just left me hanging. Ugh.